0: Welcome to the Entrepreneur's MBA, bringing you lessons from real-life entrepreneurs they don't teach in business school. Here's your host, business coach and marketing strategist, Adam Kipness. As entrepreneurs, most of our um, life, most of our income, most of our time goes toward our, pro- our, our chosen path, whether you're a dentist or whether you're a doctor or whether you own the hardware store. Or whether you're a coach or consultant like myself, we spend so much time on what we do to drive our income that we have very little time to focus on other streams of income. But to be truly wealthy, to be truly successful for the long term, you do need other ways to make money versus just the income that you derive from your business. And that's something we're going to dive into today is how to continue in your business, how to continue to grow in your business, but make passive income at the same time to truly build some generational wealth for the family versus just the income from the business. So I'm really excited to talk about how to incorporate that in the business and we're gonna learn from somebody that's got success, failure, and success again as an entrepreneur in now building passive income for himself and others. So really excited for the conversation we're going to have today. This is Adam Kipnis, host of the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. Really appreciate you listening today. As always, our show is brought, in, brought to you in part by C-Suite Radio and Powertexting.com. And Powertexting.com does give a free hotel stay to one lucky listener of every show that I have. So stay tuned for more information on that. Most of you are still in the income building phase and needing more clients getting more revenue into your business so you can not only support your family, but find other opportunities to build passive income into your portfolios as well. As you're building your income, I recommend that you download my book at freebookfromadam.com. It is eight strategies to make more money in your business without spending any money on marketing or advertising. It's super simple, step-by-step exactly what you need to create more income so you can do other passive investments like we're going to talk about today. And today's guest, Has a a great story because he started out in a more traditional path with an MBA uh, from Ohio State, started five years at Ford Motor Company, but then he departed and and started a staffing company with a partner that they were able to build up and sell for uh, $2.9 million. He's been Michigan's Entrepreneur of the Year two years in a row. He then entered the real estate sector, done over 85 different deals, been on HTTV, has his own podcast, How to Lose Money. He's got his own books. He writes for um, a number of different real estate publications. Um, Really great information that we're going to learn today. Paul Moore, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate the time.
1: It's great to be here, Adam. Thank you. You're
0: welcome. So tell me a little bit about your, your original path, because getting out of school and having your traditional MBA and going to work for Ford probably would have set you up pretty well for your career. What made the shift to deciding to go out on your own?
1: Yeah, so I had a summer job um, when I was in the middle of my MBA program the same year I got married, <clears throat> 32 years ago. And um, during the summer job, I really found, you know, that I really liked the entrepreneurial. You know, uh, it, it was a, a working for an entrepreneur with maybe 10 employees, and we actually made Ghostbusters mouthwash and Ghostbusters toothpaste, and distributed it. And we were trying to roll it out nationally. And I got to see firsthand the struggles and the fun that he had, and. The, the so-called flexibility of being an entrepreneur. And um, so I really just, I got to Ford and I found out within weeks of being at Ford, though I really liked it, my business partner and I found ourselves trying to start an oil chain shop on the side in Farmington Hills, Michigan, or a property tax consulting firm or something on the side. And I just think both of us were just destined to be entrepreneurs. We knew that at heart and it just took us you know, several years to figure out what to do, but we eventually left Ford and created the staffing firm.
0: Interesting. So, so you, uh, you did the side hustle before we knew what a side hustle was. That's exactly right. Yep. Interesting. So how did you choose the staffing company? Like obviously you tried a number of things that didn't work. How did you
1: find out that would be the one that would work? Actually my partner, uh, Barry, who actually is just the super uber successful entrepreneurial guy. Uh, he. Uh, had a relationship with somebody in Columbus, Ohio, who had this, it's called a PEO, a professional employer organization. It's outsourced, you know, basically you outsource your payroll taxes, benefits, workers' comp, et cetera. Uh, And a lot of professionals, dentists, doctors, et cetera, are familiar with this. Um, It gives the employees access to a great 401k and benefits and uh, all kinds of health and life and dental options. And it gives the uh, owner the opportunity to outsource this cost- you know, this this cost center called, you know, payroll, taxes, workers' comp, unemployment, all that. And so he knew this guy and he actually ended up teaming up with him and starting an Indianapolis office. Uh, and then I joined him about a year and a half later. Interesting. So so you, you did other
0: things and they didn't work. You found an area that did work. Were there any activities that were different in the staffing company than your prior companies that led to that greater level of
1: success? Well, I mean, it was just, it, it it was just basically a matter of commitment. I mean, Barry had left his company. He had left Ford after about thirteen months, and did a brief consulting stint. And when he went into this full time, uh, by diving in full time, the focus that he had, which was uh, you know just uh, just laser focus, is what allowed him to pave the way for me to you know join him a year and a half later. And I think that's a, that's a big challenge for all of us is to
0: have that laser focus. Sometimes it's passion-based, sometimes it's opportunity-based, but it's easy to get sidetracked, even as an entrepreneur, in trying other things, whether it's another line of business in what you're doing or whether it's what we're going to talk about in a little bit by trying to invest in real estate at the same time as you're running your business. How were how you all able to maintain that focus to build that business, to ultimately sell it for nearly $3 million
1: yeah, well, um, during that time, I mean, we were laser focused for, I'd say, four of the five years we had the company. Um, and we, we, I mean, we had to basically get to critical mass just to survive. So it was easy to be laser focused at that point. Um, and I will say the biggest mistake that I have made, and Barry would agree that in, in his 30 years since then as well, the biggest mistake both of us have made is losing focus and chasing side deals. Uh, while we were in our last year of the company before we were selling it and we, and we knew we were planning to sell it, uh, we actually both chased a couple different rabbits uh, that proved unfruitful. And I can't imagine how much lost value we that we left on the table because we were both putting a lot of our energy into these other things one was a nurse staffing company the other was a respiratory therapy staffing company they were both shiny objects that looked great on paper and basically were a huge time suck and the value of our company when we sold it was directly based on our revenue and our revenue kind of flattened that last year when we should have been taking it to the moon you know we it flattened and and that is Barry, since then, Barry has run for governor of Colorado. He's rubbed shoulders with a lot of very wealthy, very, very successful people. And he said, you know, the biggest mistake that we made that he made is this. He said, a lot of these super successful people have similar education to us, similar IQ, similar abilities, but they were able to stay very, very focused on one thing from, say, their early 20s on. And that's what led them to the success Uh, And having more success, perhaps, than we did, because we found ourselves chasing multiple rabbits at once. And, you know, the old Chinese saying, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. Right. And so what do you think led to that? Was it um,
0: success sort of getting in your head, knowing that you were successful here, you knew what you were doing, so you could branch out? Was it some level of, I don't know if greed's the right term, in trying to get bigger and better? What, what took your eye off the ball in that last year to, to both look in
1: different directions chasing deals? I think our, businesses were, our business was running well, and we had uh, the, the systems, we had really happy clients, we had everything down. And I guess, you know, a little bit, you know, um, maybe a little bit of boredom, maybe uh, just, you know, seeing that, oh, well, this is running well. Look at this over here. Look how exciting it is. And I think it was just a classic case of shiny object syndrome for both of us. And I think, I think
0: we all know how that can happen both in business and personal life. So you, so you sold the business, probably put a fair amount of money in your, your personal pocket and looked to go in a different direction. What led you toward real estate as that next
1: step in, um, in your career and in your life? Uh, yeah I, will, I want to answer that before before we do I want to clarify that you you did mention I was an entrepreneur of the year in Michigan <clears throat> twice I actually was finalist for Michigan entrepreneur of the year with Ernst and Young I just want to clarify that um, yeah so I got to Virginia we actually were leaving we we moved out of Detroit when real estate when real estate and everything else in Detroit was imploding in 1998 And we reacted against that by buying 120 acres on top of a mountain in, um, the, uh, Blue Ridge mountains of Virginia. And, um, we, I, you know, I started a nonprofit organization, um, and, uh, that didn't go super well. I mean, I was 34 years old considering myself semi-retired and that, you know, just didn't work for a high energy, high, uh, you know. Uh, ADD type uh, entrepreneur. Uh, it didn't work for me to to just sit around. And so a friend of mine and I decided to go to the courthouse steps where we heard they auctioned off houses. We thought that sounded fun. And so we went to the courthouse steps in 2000. We bought our first house. We flipped it, went really well, really quickly. And we thought, well, this is really easy. So we just dove in. And then I found over time that I had a real love for real estate.
0: That's, it, it's interesting because I, I had a, a, a real estate portion of, of my career um, where I um, flipped a couple houses, had a couple rental properties, and ultimately realized I hated real estate. And so I still have some rental properties that I let other people manage, um, but you fell in love with it. So falling in love with real estate is partially about the process, but it's also probably partially about the end result and, and continuing to look forward to that house being flipped and, and being perfect or the deal being done. Um, how much of, of that um, led you to just continue and to continue to grow in, in the business?
1: So, I mean, we, our first flip, we, it only took us like, we only added, we bought it for like 34000 We painted it, cleaned it, and then sold it for 65000 in a couple of weeks. And it just seemed like it was going to be incredibly easy. I think that was just kind of a godsend first deal because we lost money on two or three, uh, two deals after that. And we found out it was harder than we thought. But um, that was another case that, you know, we were flipping houses and I thought, well, if flipping makes sense, building from the ground up makes even more sense. So I wanted to go out and build modular homes. And uh, I think that was another case of the shiny object because it was much harder than I thought it would be to do that. We eventually built a subdivision, flipped high-end waterfront lots at uh, Smith Mountain Lake in Virginia, which actually went really well. And, um, and then went from there into commercial real estate later. Got it. Got it. So let me ask you this. So flipping houses,
0: and there, there's a number of people that, that do real estate that listen to the show and that that I have in my community. Flipping houses is one thing. Having a business around flipping houses is quite another. When did your, um, when did your real estate career turn from flipping houses into a business that was involved in real estate and how did that
1: transpire? yeah I think that was you know in two thousand one or two uh, when we had three or four houses going at once is when we had to make that shift and um, I found myself really liking the acquisition side and the marketing side, but not so much the operations i didn't know much about fixing up houses, and my partner did, and so it was a really good match because I was able to raise the money, do the marketing, do the acquisitions he was able to do the hard work of getting the contractors lined up and getting the house fixed up. And so that's how we ran our business for a number of years. Very cool. And you, you just brought up a great point that isn't only about real estate,
0: but, but traditional businesses or any business as well is that financing is a key component to it. And in real estate, a lot of times it's raising money, um, not only through banks, but privately. And how did you begin to go down that path and, and continue on that path that we'll talk about in a little bit of raising money to provide a great outcome for the
1: investor? that allowed you to utilize their money to buy the houses so for one thing we had money in a um, um, IRAs that I had from uh, when I sold my company we had uh, money also in a charitable remainder trust we got an equity line from a bank we were able to talk a, a bank into giving us a, a line that said we could buy up to five houses and we can draw on it anytime we wanted uh, and, and it wouldn't we wouldn't have to go through the whole mortgage process for each house we could borrow up to a hundred percent of our uh, of our acquisition and repair costs. And so between those sources uh, we have most of what we needed. Now when we got into buying waterfront lots, we actually brought in a handful of other friends uh, who wanted to invest and we actually shared the profits with them. And that was a again a great that was one of the most profitable businesses per hour work I've ever done for sure.
0: And but that takes a, a completely different skill set in getting partners to passively make money while you do the work and, and find the properties and, and fix them up and, and get them leased and rented? Um, how, to, how did you learn, for lack of a better term, that skill set to, to find what made or what drove outside investors to want to
1: invest with you and, and allow you to build that business? Well, I'm, I'm going to jump forward with the answer to that. I, I think I just kind of fell into it back in 2003 through eight, when we were just, you know, again, I just had friends who had some money to invest, and I just asked, showed them the opportunity. But I think the 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 a better answer to your question would be how did I learn in the recent years how to do it? Uh, more recently, we've set up two commercial real estate funds. We uh, give investors access to. The historic tax benefits and returns of commercial real estate, and in doing that, I we had to learn to get you know basically attract investors on a much wider scale. And so, the analogy I heard, and it kind of it's kind of silly analogy in some ways, but if you love uh, fish, if you love uh, if you live way up north, let's say uh, in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, somewhere and you really love salmon, you have two choices to catch salmon. Number one, you can become a spear fisherman, which means, you know, let's say you're living way out in the wilderness. You've got to learn to uh, cut a branch and make a spear. Number two, you've got to learn to throw it. Number three, you've got to position yourself by the waters and hope that a salmon will swim by and hope that your aim is right and hope they don't twist and you, that you can bring in uh, a salmon. And you might get dinner. You might not. Now, the other way to do it is to, and this is where the analogy gets a little silly, the the other way is to be a grizzly bear and stand in the waterfall while salmon are swimming upstream. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen these pictures of a grizzly bear standing in the waterfall and salmon are literally jumping into their mouth. And the the analogy, the meaning of the analogy is this. If you can be someone who is such an expert, who positions themselves in such a way that people come to them, that investors come to me, that is a much better way to do it rather than me going out and chasing investors and trying to convince them. So we have spent the last uh, two years, three years actually at Wellings Capital, my company, trying to set up to be a grizzly bear in the waterfall. We do that by, uh, I've written a couple books and I've got another one coming out this year on self storage. Um, I got another one on multifamily. Uh, We've also, um, we also are on podcasts like this one. Uh, I also write, like you said, I do blog posts, and I get interaction with potential investors on that. Uh, I speak at events as a result of the book, and so by doing that, I have investors come to me and ask about investing. And so that's what I—that's the main lesson I've learned about getting investors over the years.
0: And that's something that really translates well to to every business, whether you're trying to raise money, whether you're in real estate, if you can position yourself as the expert, be an authority and put yourself as that grizzly bear in the path of where people are already going in your field, you can be, you can be the grizzly bear that catches them. You're listening to the entrepreneurs MBA podcast um, with Adam Kipnis. I appreciate you being everyone listening today. As I said, PowerTexting.com, our sponsor, gives away one hotel stay to one lucky listener of every show. So if you go to PodcastTrip.com, you can register. Just put Paul Moore in the podcast episode you listen to, and and hopefully you can win that trip. And Paul, getting back to the the, the grizzly bear analogy and just putting yourself in the path of... um, of success really more than anything else. People are already looking for what you're offering and you're the person who's up in front of the stage or you're the person they're reading or you're the person that they're listening to. That's a business in and of itself. What led you to that type of marketing and that type of positioning that you've proven so successful in?
1: You know, uh, back in 2008, I was doing residential real estate and I was listening to, I don't think it was a podcast. It could have been a podcast and somebody was talking about how important it was to become a subject matter expert by issuing special reports. So I decided to write a special report on buying real estate at Smith Mountain Lake. And then it turned into two, three, four, five special reports and I realized, wait, if I shrunk these Word documents down to book-size pages, I'd have about 75 pages here. I might as well go ahead and write a 100-page book. And it turned into a 211-page book because once I got done writing, there was just that much more information. And I found as soon as I published that book and put it on Amazon that all of a sudden I was the expert in Smith Mountain Lake real estate. And I realized the power of that, the power of being an author. Uh, Almost every entrepreneur knows enough to write a book on their subject, it's just taking the time and having the discipline and the confidence to do it. So I did that again with multifamily investing uh, in 2016, and it's just led to so many open doors. I mean, that, that, that's the model right there. And a lot of people are following it successfully. And, and you
0: are right that almost every entrepreneur has a book in them. And uh, for, for those of you that say, I'm not, I can't write a book, I've got uh, a number of, of strategies and tips that I can teach you on how to do it without taking a whole lot of time out of your life. But once you did that, you've got your books, you've got a flow of, um, of opportunities and money coming your way, you, you transition and, and focus on self-storage and, and mobile home parks what made that transition? Why did you choose that medium as as something to invest in, and something you continue to do today?
1: Well, interestingly, Adam, my book on multifamily investing is called "The Perfect Investment," and it's funny because I, you know, in there I lay out a case for why the risks and returns and the future, the demographics of apartment investing, makes so much sense and make it the so-called perfect investment. The problem was the perfect investment was discovered by a whole lot of people. Uh, Thousands and thousands of investors, perhaps millions, have discovered apartment investing and it's become overheated. So I still think it is what I said in the book. But we found ourselves, you know, I'm I'm in my 50s and I don't want to overpay for deals. I don't want to take big risks. I don't want to swing for the fence anymore. Uh, I found myself really wanting to invest and not speculate. And it got to the point in apartment investing where speculation was becoming the norm. The people were basically investing is when your principal is generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And so uh, found ourselves not willing to overpay for a multifamily and we decided to branch out into other areas and we were really pleasantly surprised when we found out the opportunities in self-storage and mobile home parks. So now we've set up funds where we give investors access to best-in-class operators in these arenas that we have vetted. And we uh, pool together investors' capital and we invest in these uh, different operators' deals. And uh, we're really happy with the results so far.
0: And it's interesting, they, they say in um, real estate, a lot of people don't wanna deal with tenants and toilets. And in, in multi in multifamily, you've got a lot of tenants and a lot of toilets right. in, in mobile home parks and in self-storage, you don't have the, the same headaches. I'm sure you have different headaches, but you don't have the same headaches as dealing with other people. Um, how has that simplified the business in terms of the day-to-day operations of it?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, um, I, I know a guy in Lansing, Michigan, who had a duplex And he was managing the duplex. And he said he was pulling his hair out, dealing with tenant problems and toilet problems and flooring problems and all this. And he later bought a self-storage facility. And he told me this. He said, running this entire self-storage facility is easier than running that one duplex. And he said, and I lived in half of the duplex. (laughs) (laughs) So um, it is an easier business to run. But I want to be clear on this one point. Self-storage is a It's easy to run a mediocre self-storage business. It's hard to run a great one. And that's where the opportunity lies. There are 53,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S. That's about the same as all Starbucks, McDonald's, and Subways combined. And about 40,000 are run by mom and pop operators, you know, running it the easy way, if you will. The opportunity is to acquire a self-storage facility like that in the path of growth, and then upgrade it to a professionally run uh, machine that is churning out uh, a lot more income and creating a lot more value for investors. That opportunity to go from mom and pop to a franchise franchise or franchise-like model is where a lot of money is made. And that's why the returns in our fund and and, and with our operators we're investing within our fund are so strong. And you can find out more about uh, what, what
0: Paul does and, and his business at wellingscapital.com. That's W E L L I N G S capital.com. Right. And, and, and Paul, you've, it, it hasn't all been straight up in the real estate world for you. You went, you went from a million and a half dollars in the bank to two and a half million dollars in debt, and then back to debt free 13 months later by giving your way out of debt. Yeah. Tell
1: me about that and how did that come about? How does that work? Yeah, we found ourselves in late 2007 with a lot of waterfront lots and other property that we had invested in. And we knew we were going into a recession. We didn't know. Of course, there's no way to look to the future to know how steep, how bad, how long. And we just knew it was bad. And so at $2.5 million in debt, my partner quit. He said, I can't keep making half of these interest payments anymore. You're on your own January 1st, 2008, but you can have all the properties too. And I was like, I I realized our back was against the wall, and I didn't have any way out. And so I asked myself, what would my hero do? One of my heroes is a guy named George Mueller, who was a hellion in Germany in the early 1800s, and he became a pastor in England. And he actually housed a total of about 10,000 orphans over his lifetime. And he basically, um, he did this through these really unconventional methods. And I thought, what would George Mueller do right now? And I thought, well, he would probably do something ridiculous or crazy, like giving his way out of debt. I really believe in the law of sowing and reaping, or some people call it karma, that basically you give and it'll come back to you. And so uh, we decided to begin giving aggressively January 1st, 2008. And four weeks later, uh, I came across a completely... Um, I, I had a light bulb moment. And I realized a strategy to subdivide a five acre waterfront parcel that was not subdividable according to the county's rules. And I went to the county, I pitched them this crazy idea, using their law and turning it on its head to actually subdivide this parcel of land. They were amazed that somebody had come up with this loophole and they said, yeah, you, you got us. You can do this. And I actually sold four of those five lots in the very worst weeks of the recession in the fall, September or so of 2008. I found myself completely debt-free 13 months later. That's a great
0: story. I bet there were some trying times in the, in the household during that time, but finding a solution is what great entrepreneurs do, right? It's, it's not about selling what's already out there. It's finding a solution that doesn't exist and, and making it a reality.
1: Right. Yep.
0: Now before we wrap up, I want to just talk a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of uh, the type of work that you do today. So you you bring in private investors to partner with you as part of the fund, but it's not just about the returns. There's many different ways that sort of the, the numbers work and the benefits work for the investors that you bring in. Can you tell us a little bit about just the nuts and bolts and what's that, what that looks like for a passive investor to join you and your team? Yeah, Obviously, absolutely.
1: Yeah, there's a reason, Adam, that that most of the Forbes 400 invests in commercial real estate. And the reason is this, the value is based on a specific formula. You know, if you're Chip and Joanna Gaines Jr. and you improve your half million dollar house up to a million dollar house, but it's in a neighborhood of $400,000 houses, you're probably not going to get your million dollars out of it. But in commercial real estate, it's very different. The value is based on a cash flow stream and a cap rate or rate of return. The formula is this. I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds here. The formula is this. The value of the asset is based on the income divided by the rate of return. And specifically, it's value equals net operating income divided by the cap rate or the capitalization rate. The cap rate is the rate of return that an asset like this in this location at this time would generally bring. So the rate of return used to be, in real estate used to be eight or 9% typically. And now the cap rates are running five, six, seven percent And so if you take the income divided by, let's say 6%, the cap rate, that will be the value of the asset. So you can effectively force appreciation by adding income and it's harder, but it's also possible to get a lower or compressed cap rate since that's in the denominator. Increase in the numerator, decrease in the denominator will result in a very large increase in value of the asset. And by doing that, um, by forcing appreciation, we can give our investors outsized returns. I could give you a quick example if you like. Yeah, please do. Because it's, it's always good because I understand the math, but not everyone might. So putting it in real life terms may help. Okay, great. So I am using a, I am changing the numbers a little bit just to make easy math on this, and I want to be clear that this is not an investment in our fund that's come to consummation yet. It's not sold yet. It's just in the operations phase right now, and so um, I, I just want to be clear on that. But let's say we bought a mobile home park for five million dollars. Okay. So the mobile home park, five million dollars. Three million of that would be debt. Okay, so sixty percent loan to value, which is a fairly safe standard amount of debt, and then two million of the five million would be equity. Okay, now the this is a and this is a like I said a real life example where I changed the numbers a little bit, but um, the operator went in. We work with best in class operators. They went and they said, "Hey, there's a lot of work trailers and boats and RVs parked around these mobile homes. In fact, some cases there's three or four or five or six cars parked in front of this mobile home." We gotta clean this place up. And so what they did is this operator paved an acre in the front of his mobile home park. He put in a beautiful fence, a gate, a gate code. And he said, okay, if you've got a work trailer or a boat, RV, extra car, you've gotta pay us and put, your, uh, put that inside this paved, fenced area. And then he went out to the community and he said, hey, we have boat and RV storage. Now, when this acre is filled up and when it's all you know leased up, it's going to generate an additional $10,000 a month. Okay. Now he only spent a hundred thousand dollars to do this paved fenced area. So when it's fully leased up, it'll generate 120,000 a year, 10,000 a month times 12. That's 120% annual return. Well, that's great. And the investors are going to benefit by that extra 10,000 a month in income, but it's much bigger than that. And here's where the value formula comes in. Now, Remember, the value is the income divided by the cap rate. So if you take that extra income, $120,000 a year, divide it by a 6% cap rate, that's 0.06. That is $2 million in additional value created. Now let's go back. We spent $5 million on the park. Now by creating $2 million in additional value, we just increase the value of the park by 2 divided by 5 or 40%. Wow, that's really great. But it's much better than that. Because remember, there was 3 million in debt and 2 million in equity. Well, all this increased value flew, it basically passes into the equity holders' hands. They just went from 2 million in equity to $4 million in equity. They doubled the value of their investment all by this one simple change. And that's before they did all kinds of other things to raise income. And by upgrading this facility to an institutional level, <clears throat> in theory, they can also compress the cap rate. And if they can take the cap rate from let's say 7% down to, say, 5.5%. That's another significant increase in value. These are the kind of levers and the kind of leverage that we have as commercial real estate operators. And this is why the uh, owner owning commercial real estate can be so, so powerful. No, it's a great story because, um,
0: as you said, uh, uh, you can make the most beautiful house in the world, but it's still going to have to be sold based on what the neighborhood around it is with commercial real estate. And we didn't even get into the tax benefits. That's a whole separate conversation that that you all can reach out to Paul about um, and, and understand that benefit of it as well. But you've got five or six different ways to increase the return for your investors that a traditional
1: real estate investment just can't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very true. It's really powerful. And uh, there's so much more we can say. <laughs> And I'm sure you say a lot of it
0: on your podcast, How to Lose Money. As we wrap up, tell us a little bit about that podcast and what you discussed
1: so other people can, can find it and listen to it and learn more. I found over the years that a lot of the great historical stories of you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, they don't translate to the everyday entrepreneur. And so what I thought did transfer though really well is the failure stories, the mistakes, the pain, the losses, of all kinds of successful entrepreneurs. So on our How to Lose Money show, we interview successful entrepreneurs, investors, executives, and ask them how they lost money in the past or how they had failures in the past on their road to success. And by learning these mistakes, we can learn from those mistakes and realize there's a path to not repeating those Uh, errors and those problems. And um, by doing that, uh, hopefully we can be better entrepreneurs and investors. Well, they
0: say the smart person learns from his own mistakes, the genius learns from the mistakes of others. And so that's a great opportunity for everyone in our world to learn from what other people did wrong so we don't replicate the same mistakes. Paul, I really appreciate you being here, appreciate the information and the knowledge and and taking some time to talk to the audience today.
1: It was great, Adam. Thanks for having me on.
0: You're welcome. And thanks, everyone, for listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA podcast. Definitely follow me on Instagram at at Adam Kipnis and continue learning and focusing on this show. I love having you all here. Thanks. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's MBA. Download Adam's free book, How to Make More Money in Your Business, at www.freebookfromadam.com.